and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series, where I have Justin Galliford. Justin's got a wealth of qualifications, uh, BSc, an MSc, an MBA, uh, a DIP MC. So he's he's a lifelong learner. He's also the CEO of the Norse Group, which are a service provider. And we were just discussing the kind of things that they do. Everything is facilities management. So it's everything from school buses to waste management to landfill to filling in the potholes, those damn potholes that keep us all so busy in Norfolk. But um, Justin, great having you on. You were a guest recommendation from the CEO of Adnams, the the brewing company, uh, Andy Wood. Uh, Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a a pleasure to join you. Yeah. And I I look back and and see that you began as a a young man as an environmental scientist, trying to understand Mm -hmm. how to look after our environment. I mean, environment's become a topic that's so dear to our hearts these days for those who are not uh, the uh, climate change deniers, um, along with the ones who think that, you know, COVID vaccination and that uh, 3G masks cause uh, cancer in you and all this kind of stuff. But um, what got you into environmental uh, science and and what do you feel is making a difference and uh, in the work that you and the guys do? Um. Thanks, Jonathan. What what got me into environmental science, like I think like many people, that gets you on that starting path. It was a really good teacher at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, I absolutely loved geography, and I had a really inspiring geography teacher. Uh, I was also pretty good at science, so the two began to come together as, as a good combination. Uh, and then I was quite interested in more about a holistic approach to environment, the environment, rather than focusing on one specific part like biology or you know, environmental chemistry. And environmental science really is a kind of good all-rounder. Uh, so that, that really got me into it. And, and the more I learned, the more I realised how important it was to protect what is a very fragile environment. And of course, you, you know, uh, you touch on climate. Climate is fundamental, really. Uh, and, and what I'm really pleased to say is that despite some, some concerns through my career that really the world wasn't paying too much attention, whilst there's still a lot to be done, I, I think the outlook is stronger than it's ever been in terms of organizations taking responsibility uh, and i'm really pleased to say that one of the things i've managed to do since i've been in post uh, as ceo of norse group is to really champion the development of our esg strategy and net zero so i, I finally get to be in charge to help make things happen yeah and, and i'm really pleased that you're doing that and and also the other thing is of course you, you, your work is with the public sector where they <laughs> decided with lots of pressure they get from government as the government removes more and more money from local authorities they're trying to mm-hmm. find ways of doing the same work for cheaper. Yeah. So they tend to go out for, for contracts. Um, but it's always um, a double-edged sword because, you know, you can you can get a lot of criticism that, you know, oh, you're cutting corners and saving money. And But actually, you can come in, particularly I've had actually a couple of other uh, CEOs of facilities management businesses on the podcast. It, it's, it's not to some people's sexy work, but it's really needed and you know about it if people aren't emptying the bins or getting the kids to school or sorting out the roads or whatever it might be, or the landfills all over the place. Um, you know, you can see with just a, a strike that goes on in the old days in the public sector and all the, the bins weren't taken away or whatever yeah, it might yeah. be. Uh, so, so tell us about, you know, how do you sort of how do you bring joy and excitement to an area which is seen as necessary, but not particularly exciting uh, for other people who might be, I don't know, special forces, Navy SEAL or something like that. You know, how, how, do, how do you, how many employees, by the way, do you have? And just give us an idea of how, how you can then engage that level of employees. We've got around eight and a half thousand. Wow. Uh, across the country. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you talk about incite, excitement and, uh, you know, I've listened to a, a few of your podcasts and you've had some, some great people on here talking about some real things that have happened to them, which are, you know, I listened to one with, with Splash talking about what happened in the Falklands and just an incredible story, you know, what, what, a, what a guy. But so, so how do you bring excitement? I can't bring that kind of level, but 
you know, what I do think, and you touch on it, is actually the work that, that our staff do across the country is fundamental to the fabric of those local communities. Uh, and we talk about our purpose, being united in purpose, working as a team and working uh, with our, our local authority partners. And we talk internally about our, our kind of cultural North Star, which is improving people's lives. So the excitement really comes from that everything our staff do is, is ultimately for greater good. It's helping the communities in which they live, um, helping maintain those spaces. And I do think increasingly, and we see this with what lots of people call Generation Z, young people join us at the start of their careers, no matter what part of the organisation is, increasingly they say, well, okay, yeah, I know what the pay is, I know what the job is, but as an organisation, what are you doing about the environment? What's your view on social governance? And that, that really has come across strongly since, uh, since the pandemic finished. So that's really exciting for people. Yeah, no, and it's interesting. And I've been listening. I know you tr you work out in the morning in the in the gym. You do an hour's yeah. training. Uh, I was doing my run this morning and then my gym session. And I was listening to Daniel Coyle, the Culture Code. And I don't know whether you've read it, but it's it's one uh, or listened to it. But it's one I'd, I'd recommend you listen to. But all these different organisations and how do they help their employees have a sense of purpose and meaning mm. in what they do, so that they interact with the general public in a much better way. Because it can be for some people just a job, and then if someone complains, they go, "Look, you know, tough." But but if you really have a care for your customers, the the, the people that you're providing a public service to, can make a huge difference. And um, what is it? Uh, I think the Gallup survey, something like eighteen percent are fully engaged, love their work. About yeah. sixty percent are neutral. And about 20%, and again, these numbers are approximate, but about 20% are completely disengaged. They just loathe their job. They come in to do it. So um, I think for you to take 8,500, 8,800 people and get them doing their job so they interact with the public uh, in, in a positive way and they feel a sense of meaning and purpose in what they do, how do you give them more of a sense of um ownership and autonomy over the way they do what they do because they just so just do that don't argue about it don't don't give me any ideas i'm not interested just do your job i don't think that's your style knowing all the studies that you've done and, and your interest mm. in leadership how do you make it so you really are interested in their ideas ways of improving things it, it's a fascinating balance because of course as a large organization as you touched on earlier people come to you to help them uh, make efficiencies. Some of that is the corporate machine with procurement or whatever it might be. But at the same time, you have to make sure that operations locally still have that, that local character and really meet those needs, um, which may not be clearly identified of, of your partners and your customers. So I, I think improving communication is something we've done a lot of. It's really hard to get that many people to communicate up uh, as well as us communicate down. We've, we've spent quite a lot of time and energy uh, getting better platforms in, whether that's an app, whether that's forums, to really get the views of people so we hear their ideas and we, we can then give our ops directors locally discretion to bring those ideas to life. That, that's really good. And I, I'm thinking back to a programme called Back to the Floor, where different leaders like you um, went and put on the overalls and were yeah. you know cleaning out toilets or doing some of those jobs alongside their employees. And learning what it's like and you're going well why do we do it this way well we've always done it this way well why don't we just do that well no one's allowed us to do that well just do it oh really okay um have you ever experimented with that and gone out and tried out the different bits of your massive norse group i, I have and i've got to say i love it it was um one of the most powerful things i did over the last few months uh, i went out with a refuse crew so i'm out helping them lift bins uh, and um i mean it, it's really good because you see the pressures are under you see how hard it is to work in a dynamic environment like that. You've got moving cars around, so you've got to make sure it's safe. And of course, they're under some time pressure. And you, you just get to hear their side of it. And they get the chance to speak to somebody that they probably feel they wouldn't normally see or wouldn't be interested. Well, and there's nothing quite like you're all stinking of bin juice, having a cup <laughs> of tea while they're telling you how, how they feel the world works. It's really good, really good. Yeah, no, it's, it's very special. And I'm delighted. I imagined you'd be doing that. But um, <laughs> I, I would encourage you to do it as, as much as you can get out there and get your, your managers to do it as well. You know, there's, uh, I think time and again, um, too many managers don't know what it's like to do the job that they're grinding the people to do. 
And when you've gone and experienced it, a bit like, you know, in officer training, I remember doing airborne selection. Yeah. yeah. And the instructors, the corporals who were beasting us, there was Private Jenkins. I'll never forget him. He was a gunner. And we were we were training. It was the signals and the gunners together uh, doing pre-selection for airborne training. And and he was a tiny little guy. And, and he had a huge pack of 55 pounds of kit. Wow. And it was really struggling. It was way at the back. And the officers, we have to run up and down the line and go and get the, the stragglers and bring them up. And this corporal particularly hated officers, just loathed officers, but he was the instructor. And and you have to call them staff. It's a, right, a yeah, yeah. And he goes, carry his pack. And I go, but staff, I've got my own pack. He said, don't argue with me. Carry his pack as well as yours. Yes, staff. So I go, Jenkins, give me your pack. I put my arms out. He puts his pack on the front of me and I got my back on the back. And Jenkins is off like a spring rabbit. He's just running away and he's joined the group up and he's really happy. I just got his rifle. And I am absolutely banjaxed. And so I'm, I'm just like walking, trying to sort of st- stagger away. And the corporal's going, give up. You're a, you're a, you're a, what's he called? You're a useless Rupert. You know, Rupert's a, that's a term of endearment disdain you're a real useless rupert get on the jack wagon give in i said thank you staff i'm gonna keep going and i just sort of kept going and in the end he got so frustrated he goes jenkins come back here you git take your pack and he said give me 20 i said with my pack on stuff yes with your pack so i'm trying to do press-ups luckily on my knees at this stage um <laughs> but he you know it, there's this idea of how you relate mm, to the yeah. people that you're with and the fact that you you have to go through what they go through. And in fact, he, they made a point of when we had a rest stop, they went, right, there's the hill. The, the, the soldiers can have a rest. Officers, go and run up that hill about five times. So they made us run up down the hill. And as soon as we'd finished, we go, right, let's go on again now. And you go, oh, no. But I, it has always taught me, don't expect anybody else to do something you yeah. wouldn't do yourself. Um, because this is going to be... Uh, a way of of you know you relating to the bin guys and uh what goes on interesting enough it's interesting how in society people look on certain jobs as good and other jobs as not so good i remember i was dyslexic and had dyscalculia and my teacher in halifax was a, a young lad would say if you don't improve your maths and your spelling you're going to be a dustman and i thought well why are you being so disdainful about that and it was yeah, like yeah. it was like it was people can get very snobby about what's good and what's not. But if you're doing a job you're doing and you get fulfillment, it doesn't matter what the job is. I know some very high prestige jobs that people are doing and they're really unhappy in it. They're not at all doing what they're doing. It makes them lots of money. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So let's talk about some inspiring leaders that you've met. Um, who, Who would you like to call out if there was a couple of people and what were the qualities that they had that inspired you? But the first is a, a chief executive called Claire Cullins, and okay. she's the chief exec of Norfolk Community Foundation, as the name suggests. It's a, it's a foundation that operates in Norfolk. Uh, and uh, I've been lucky enough to work with Claire on a couple of initiatives. And at the moment, it's, it's a pretty difficult period with austerity and so on for many, many people around the country and certainly, you know, in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it's, it's hard working in the third sector as well because funds aren't quite they were. But you know, my, my real take from Claire is a real ability to galvanise people, to paint a vision and to take them on a journey as a really inspiring leader and make stuff happen, but make stuff happen for the good of the people, you know, helping people across Norfolk. Uh, one fantastic initiative, setting up food hubs. I mean, without a doubt, she has worked with her team and built that team to really deliver. And of course, she always points out it's the team that have done it. But that that starts with a great leader. So a, a real to me, a real inspiration, always positive, galvanizing and making it happen. Really and Claire, Claire's running this Norfolk Community Foundation, you said. Is that like a, a, a collection of local authorities? No, so it's set up uh, as a as a standalone foundation and it, it has um, it receives money in different ways. But of course, it relies on donations as well. And it bids for money. So so it's very much standalone, but supporting um really many of the things that authorities perhaps would like to have done, but no longer have the budget for. Okay. Is it like a charity? 
it's a, yeah, it's a, it's in the third sector. Um, yeah. So status is probably an interest, a community interest company. But yes, very much so. Very good, very good. And then the other one was, I think, your father. If I'm right, when we talked. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your yes. father. Well, it's really interesting one because you think about your great leaders. But you know, one of the things that I think really important is um, what what takes you through life is people you can look up to. And 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 I accept many people look up to their parents, but I, I hope those listening to what I say will will kind of understand a bit about why I think it's uh, such a good example of a leader. My my dad growing up um, had a really good job. He worked for an American pharmaceutical company, but I never realised at the time the size of the role or the pressure. And he had a, a regular technical regulatory role right across Europe. He used to travel around the world quite a lot. Um, but what I really learned from him as I got older and began to understand what he did a little bit, what I admired in him was uh, his humility um, and he was very humble about it all. So, so when he got home, he, he wasn't executive, he was just dad. Uh, he was part of the community. He loved to go to the pub in the evenings and have chats with his friends. And um, he never, so he never let it go to his head. Uh, and that is something which I really do take from him and always try and stay true to, because I think that's a really important part of being a good leader. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, Roger, describes his three hums, humility, humanity and humour. Yeah. And 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 I, th- I think very much we're, we're missing both humility and humanity. I mean, humility, when you look at some of the um, the big dominant leaders that we've got, it would be Trump yeah. or Boris or yeah. this yeah. trust um uh or a dogan or you know um xi jinping none of them have that kind of humility but then also humanity we desperately need some humanity with the as we're recording with the atrocities going on in the war in the war in gaza and Mm. and each side doing awful things to each other um and you know the women and children and the innocents suffer so um i think having a father who gave you a model of how to behave through his behavior um it is very special thank you for that now let's let's talk about your life um you know our life shapes us into the leader that we are mm. today you're you're the ceo of the norse group um what kind of events in your life if you could pick a couple out that have shaped the leader that we are meeting today well i think you know, you you sum up really you know life shapes you Without a doubt, life is your best lesson. But I think what I've done over um, my lifetime is uh, subconsciously really looked at people and thought, why have, they, why have they been successful? How do they do that so well? And why have others not achieved perhaps what they set out to? So, so I guess along the way, um, I've kind of picked people that I see as a bit of a mentor and thought, I like that. And I'll, I'll take a little of that. And OK, that didn't work for that person. So I think it's a lot of it's having an inquisitive mind about the way people do things and why and, and what results it brings. I think that's that's really important. Um, yeah. and, and I have to say that I've, I've been blessed with some really good um, line managers as well. Uh, and there, there's, there's one in particular who, when I first came into the waste sector, um, he was a, a, a line manager who'd come up from the ground. He was a plant fitter by trade, could fix and mend anything. But his ability to manage people on the ground was something I always kind of had an admiration so um, I always look really closely at what he did and I talked to him about it. Um, and it was really interesting because equally he wasn't computer literate and he would say he was probably dyslexic, but they didn't call it out when he was at school. So I'd help him with reports and write stuff and spreadsheets. And in return, you know, we'd talk about how things worked and how you let a plant contract and how you manage stuff and, and staff. So it's that combination of, I think, observation and, and interacting with those people that really hold you, you hold up as good mentors. Yeah, and it's interesting with that uh, experience from the plant manager who became a good leader for you, that that he found a way to to make allowance for certain, as we call it, neurodiverse uh, issues yeah. that he has and I have, through through going more on the people side and the way yeah. he interacts and reads other people, and I think it's the one of the greatest skills of all particularly as AI is coming in and a lot of the jobs, you know, lawyers, accountants, some of the medical roles can be done by AI. It's, it's grinding stuff, but really understanding other people, motivating them, inspiring them as the the podcast is all about takes a special kind of learning and skill. It's almost like a language that you can learn 
lot of people Absolutely. go, you know, our leaders born or made. I'm a, a great believer that you can develop an awful lot of skills. And I, yeah. part of why I love what, what I do in my 60s now, and I'll hopefully, as my health stays with me, be doing it in my 80s, is that you see people who have skills, but maybe not so good with people, as we used to yeah. say, N-A-N-P, not allowed near people. Um, <laughs> and they and they they learn these new skills. I mean, you're an interesting example, Justin, for example, um, where you've got a huge number of qualifications on the academic side. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a generalization to, to say that, you know, people have a lot of academics, don't have the, the people skills, the... Um, the what are they called the, the street smarts in america they call yeah, but, yeah. but i in talking with you i get the sense you've combined both how did you how did you make the most of all that academic study so it wasn't ethereal and distant but you mm-hmm. made it relevant to your job leading a facilities management large organization um tell me well i think i had some some good fortune along the way because i did uh, my first degree and a master's fairly close to each other and and then when i came out of university with my master's it was quite hard to get a, a well-paid role um, and I, I wasn't I don't, I don't mean a job that kind of took me to a land of milk and honey but it's your first rung on the ladder just covering the basic costs of you know being in London or something you just couldn't do it so so I ended up um, working for myself as a job in consultant really going from organization to organization and, and that was a, a great teacher because you're straight in it and you're doing everything. Yes, you're delivering your, your technical expertise. You have to negotiate the contract. You have to um, make sure you're getting paid on time. You're immediately speaking to lots of people all across the business. So very quickly, I was fortunate enough to speak to lots of different people and lots of different organisations. And you got a feel for how this thing called a culture works. And you realise that a business isn't just a business, it's a collection of people. And, and that was kind of fascinating, but a really good lesson before I developed any kind of prejudice. So it was chance, really, but it's one that I then capitalised on. Brilliant. And, and you've made, you, you've triggered in me um, with that story about how you, and, and also in our conversation, how you you gave your experience, uh, you, you, you know, said, I'll have a go, let me let me come and show you what I can do, and, and, the, and yeah, you gained the yeah. trust. It reminds me of a lovely story from one of my early um, sort of self uh, development and learning lessons of life was listening to Earl Nightingale. And and for you and, and for everybody listening, I really would recommend you go back to, he's some of the early greats where people have often copied from these people on their advice about life and, um, you know, um, how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. Those, these are the same kind of generation. And, and he said, look, when I grew up in the Great Depression, when there were just queues of people without work, uh, it was desperate. There was no support network and, and people were in dire straits. He said, I, I, there was one man I knew, he was never out of work. What he did was he would target a couple of companies and he would learn all he could about that company. He talked to people who worked there, he'd do his research. In those days, of course, there was no internet, there was no AI. But he, he'd go to libraries and, and newspapers and find out all he could about it and talk, particularly talk to people who work there. And then he would write to the CEO, to the CEO. And he'd say, hi, this is my name. And I've been doing some studies into your organization. And I'm aware of a few areas which would help you improve. And I, and I know about this information about your organization. Would you pay me the honor of meeting me for half an hour, I'll show you my thoughts. And, and they're always curious about that. They, they want to know, well, <laughs> what can I... so they'd meet with him yeah. and, and, and he'd tell them all about it. And he'd say, let me come and work for you for two weeks. I'll do it for free. Come, let me come and work for you for two weeks and I'll help introduce the things I've learned and some of the suggestions of how to improve it. And if you like it, take me on and, and, and pay me. And every time he always got hard and uh, and that commitment and that interest in the organization mm-hmm. meant those CEOs were always fascinated by those people because the others were going, give me some work, any work. I don't care what you yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. But they were Brilliant. they were like, gimme, gimme. Whereas he was going, I've got something for you. I can, and I'm interested in your organization. So I don't know whether you get those kind of people these days, but it, it's that kind of 
making use, like back to you, making use of all that you learned with your BSc and your MSc and your MBA, and how can you turn some of those things into practice? I know when I did my MBA, which is, um, you, you, you're you a big man for the, uh, uh, was it Angela Ruskin? Uh, no, at University yeah, of East Anglia. Yeah, yeah, Norwich. Um, and, and I did the Open University because I was in the army. But I'm an early adopter. So I always, as soon as I had read about something, I would practice it when yeah, I was chief of staff of yeah. the army's biggest brigade. It was a it was a regional brigade. Again, it wasn't sexy. We weren't in a war zone. We were running a region. We were doing mm. all the facilities management and the and the running of a of a brigade of about twelve and a half thousand people from the Scottish borders to North Lincolnshire, east of the Pennines, and. Some of them thought I was nuts. Others, some of the things worked, but it, it embedded what I've learned practically. Did you find you did similar things? Absolutely. I, I, particularly when I did my uh, MBA, which uh, I did oh, just over a decade. I finished that ago now. Um, it, the way that you, I got the most value out of it was doing exactly that, using it as I was learning and trying things out, because that shows you whether things have practical utility. Uh, and I think, you know, to your earlier point, where people can have lots of qualifications, but not always be able to deploy them in the right way. I, I always feel, and I say to people, qualifications are excellent. I don't want to support anybody who wants to get a qualification, but you've got to make sure you can apply it. Don't get, don't get dazzled by a load of certificates. It's how you apply it and the way you conduct yourself will take you a lot further than a piece of paper. Uh, spot on, spot on. Well, um, Let's let's go from um, those kind of qualifications and some of the life experiences to one of your life experiences where uh, I'm always interested. Happy with good things is fine, but but dark moments in our life mm. are hard, really hard to handle. I've got a friend of mine who's having a really dark moment at the moment and is looking to be um, getting support from the Priory Group um with his mental health mm. and all that's going on and i really wish him well because it's a very tough time for him um but what was your dark moment and what did you learn from it i mean overall i'd say i've been very lucky in life i don't have many dark moments but i um i do we talked about it before i have one moment which was very challenging for me at the time um around when i was just turning 30 i had a problem with my eyesight and I, I nearly lost my eyesight and I had multiple operations over a period of six months and it was it was touch and go. Um, and I was very young for, for that to be happening. And it was also quite unusual. Um, and so that that really challenged me because it came out of nowhere, seemingly. Uh, and all of a sudden you've got some potentially life changing things happening around you and you can't control it. I found it very difficult. Uh, I suppose what, certainly what it taught me was in the longer term, you need to be positive and you have to be thankful for the things you have. And actually, um, one of the things it really taught me was don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself because there was definitely a period where I was feeling very down, asking myself why, why me? And of course, the reality is why anybody? Uh, these things happen. Um, and I, I don't know, I recounted to you what really brought it home to me was I was at the hospital one day and I saw a young family of a young child who was clearly terminally ill. And I thought, I don't have any problems. That That's a problem. You've got pain etched on their face. Uh, and so after that, you know, it really taught me, don't feel sorry for yourself. Stay positive, do the right things uh, and give something back. Yeah. It, it, that perspective that you got from seeing that terminal child in their corridor and you go, who am I to complain about what yeah, I have? Absolutely. I, I had a, a similar thing with a different health challenge about a year or two ago where I was in acute pain. It was just uh, an operation went wrong and there was complications and what should have been a simple procedure went, went horribly wrong. And I was in pain in the, in hospital in the most acute pain, but I breathed through it and I put it in perspective to everybody else mm. and all that was going on. Goodness, you know, if you're living in Gaza right now or even Absolutely. if, if you'd lost, lost relations uh, on the border in Israel who'd been rather taken as hostages or, yeah, or killed yeah. you know what's what's our kind of problems compared to what they're going through yeah, yeah it's definitely. not to minimize i think we've mm. got to be careful not to minimize mm. some of the challenges that we're facing but at the same time i do find it always very helpful to put things in perspective and when i think of uh serving in bosnia when there were just whole villages just destroyed and uh mass graves that i found outside the camp gates of the place we were in which you know 
it was an old factory with no roof because the, the, the mortars had blown it all off and things. And I was just going, let's, let's put this in perspective. And when you're with some people in certain jobs and they're whinging and complaining about, oh, this is not right and that's not right. Guys, has anybody died? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let, yeah. Let's put this in perspective. Nobody's died. Yeah. We'll find a way to solve it. What do you think we should do? So I, I do think it's really important that we we put that in perspective. And also we have a, a bit like you're talking about your, your true north, a, a moral code that you can live by. I, I was just listening again on the uh, the culture code with Daniel Coyle to the story of um, Johnson & Johnson when they had somebody um, poison the Tylenol, Tylenol tablets and with, yeah. with um, I think it was cyanide and seven people died. I mean, it was, everybody in the world knew about it. They, mm. But they, you know, what do you do? You know, lawyers said, oh, well, just, just remove them from Boston where it is. And others said, oh, well, no, it's not really your fault. And it's just, it's just one-off case. Just tell them it's just a one-off case. But their whole share price, nothing was going down. And the CEO, who was an ex-military man who'd um, captained a, a landing craft in the war, said, no, 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 we, we've got our credo. We've got from the founder in about 1934 a way of being and how we put our customers and the, the nurses and the doctors first and, and their health. He said, we're going to withdraw it all. It cost them $110 million to withdraw all of the Tylenol. But then a funny thing started to happen is they put new tamper-proof stops on it things like that so so people would know that it wasn't tampered with the share price began to climb back up and the yeah. use of Tylenol yep. began to go and it actually became bigger people used yep. Tylenol more than they had done before because of the brand awareness but not only that because they knew they had some values that they would live by absolutely and, and absolutely. It, there's integrity in the service yeah, yeah a absolutely. gentleman or a lady is someone who knows what they stand for and what they went for mm -hmm. for so talking of that topic it's a bit of a story to go into uh, moral quotient. Could you give an example of something that didn't work out as you intended um, and, and what you learned from it? So certainly back in the days when I, I described myself earlier as a jobbing consultant, I, I did some work for a company, a large company, and I used an associate to work with me. And as often in this sort of situation, the relationships just weren't right. That there was uh, just not a good cultural fit between the associate I was using to help me deliver the work and the customer. And it got really, really fractious. Uh, and I could see this big contract falling apart. Uh, and it, it was obviously very important to me. So I, I had to make some really difficult decisions. I, uh, in the end, what I did was to stand that associate down. And that did lead to the end of our, our relationship professionally. But, you know, I have to say, I think it was the right thing to do on balance because the customer wasn't happy. They didn't feel they were getting the right level of quality from us. And it was what we were doing from was very important. So... Um, what I said to them was I would finish the contract at, at cost. If I pay my accommodation while traveling, I would just get it done for them. So it goes back to your, your previous point, really, or a previous example. Inadvertently, what I did was to, was to show, show trust, uh, I hope, and demonstrate trust to them, that, that I believed in what I'd done for them when I wanted to get it right. And we built that trust back. And actually, out the back of it, I continued to work for, for quite some time for them. So what it, what it really taught me was do the right thing. Don't try and dodge the difficult decisions. If you do the right thing, more often than not, it will lead to the best outcome for everybody. Yeah, you, you're so right. And I, and I think of similar cases where perhaps I hadn't got things right and I tried to rectify it, apologised, accept responsibility. And um, sometimes that relationship just came to an end. You weren't going to, the, the trust had been broken, you weren't going to carry on. But other times they would come back to you. Um, I remember particularly where I, I, I challenged someone and said I, I wasn't going to do that because it, it was morally the wrong thing to do. He wanted me to coach somebody to um, get that, that person to realize they need to leave the organization so it would save him in HR some money in, <laughs> in a severance uh, and having to pay them off. I said, no, I wouldn't do that. But I will coach you to do the right thing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he yeah. really didn't like that but actually a year later he came back to me um and i had a similar situation where i had a disagreement with someone in an organization i didn't like the way they were behaving they were quite toxic um and and now that person's been promoted into another role and, and he's saying can you come and work with my team okay oh my god um <laughs> provided you know i'm going to give you a hard time 
<laughs> I'm, I'm not going to make it easy for you. Yeah, 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 that's okay. No, no, I, I really like what you do. Okay. But that you have to know what you will and what you won't do. Yeah. Um, purpose is the next one around the Inspire Leadership Compass, which we've got on our website, jonathanperks.com, for any of you want to have a look and look at the website and all the top tips and the podcast like this with Justin, um, they're all on there. You help, help yourself, free materials for everybody. Um, what gives your life meaning and purpose? Uh, and then what advice will you give to people who are listening in, in working out what your purpose is in life? I think so often we can go through life without a, a solid purpose. For me, I've been really lucky. I've got a great wife and I've got two lovely girls. My purpose is about being a good dad and the best husband I can be and having a happy family life. So, so it's my family that gives me purpose, that, that drives me to keep doing the things I do and, and do it as best as I can and, and do it you know, with that, that really strong moral streak as well. Yeah. Um, and what about people who are listening? They're going, I don't know, I don't have purpose in my life. I'm not sure what I'm doing. I'm just just in this job to pay the mortgage. Um, mm. It's really not. What, what advice would you give them? Uh, everyone's in different situations but what i can say is that i know when i look back at different parts in my life having a job and uh, with purpose underneath it uh, in terms of a strong family gives you that that extra 20 30 percent to get out and do things when things are tough uh, i think it's really hard to stay motivated and be happy when you don't really know why you're doing something and it's particularly challenging in the workplace so I, i'd encourage anybody to just to really reflect on what is important to them. And of course, your purpose doesn't have to be a family. Um, it could be your friends. It could be anything. But really think about your purpose. Because once you know what your purpose is, you'll recenter your life and, and, and shape it accordingly. That might mean different roles or, or, or different different directions totally. Yeah. And, and you touched nicely on you say what's important in life. One of the things that's important in life, and I'm looking across here on my personalised my life map, my, my milestone priorities. Um, my first thing, a bit like you, is quality time with my wife. Love, care, and dates. I'm taking her out for a date night tonight. Um, going to a restaurant. I'm just going to have some time before I'm away working with some clients uh, in America next week. But the next thing is our children. And the third thing is our fitness as a couple. Relax, mm. time, mental health, well-being. But fitness, you know. So health quotient is the third area on the Inspire Leadership Compass, too. So how do you keep yourself healthy? And what would be your tips for mental and physical health with uh, you share with people listening? You, you touched on it earlier that I, I train every morning at the gym before work. I, I get up fairly early. I'm up just after five. I get to the gym. I do a, a solid hour's workout, have a shower, and, and then get into work or, or go wherever I'm going. I, I think that space is really important. So in terms of a tip, whatever you want to do, you have to be dedicated and committed to making it happen. Many times I could stay in bed another hour quite happily, but but I know that I never feel quite as good uh, if I miss it um, compared to if I make the effort and get there and have that own space and, and stay physically active. Yeah. I, I think as a compliment to that, I am quite careful for things that I eat. Uh, I certainly wouldn't say that I've got a really strict diet, but I follow it as closely as I can when I can. But when I'm out and about with my wife, just like you, we're going to have a lovely meal. You don't you don't worry about it. Um, but you know you've got a five-mile run coming next morning. That's just how it is. That's uh, that's the balance that you have to put in place. Yeah, well, it's, it's a whole it's a whole fascinating area. I'm very much into studying all about longevity, um, mm. the nutrition. I've got a friend, uh, friend of mine, Barbara uh, Cox Lovesy, who is an expert on nutrition. And so we're always, in fact, we had a coaching session the other day. So I coach her, and then she gives me some tips on nutrition. It's a sort of <laughs> bit of a deal we have between us, and. Um, I, I found with the training, the certain nutrition that I have to help with longevity, uh, mm. because I want my my health span to match my lifespan, so that Absolutely. I happily Absolutely. croak at the last minute, having had a good long life, but without long periods of of yeah. um, uh, serious illness, whether it be diabetes or, or, mm. or um, uh, cardiac or lung disease or cancers or whatever it is. You know, you some of these things you can't do much about, but there's an awful lot you can do about it. Yeah. Um, sleep was one of the things, uh, don't always get enough sleep. And, and I yes. am at that stage in life, you're 44, but I'm almost 62 and, and I have to get up two or three times a night. So, so my sleep is broken, 
but I've got wearable tech. I've got the aura ring on this side and on this side, I've got my, my uh, whoop strap. So I'm really overdoing it, but I love data and I love um, what's going on. And I learned a lot about sleep from that. What are you doing to improve your sleep and how much actual sleep you have time in bed, but how much actual sleep are you roughly getting a night? I would say on average, uh, I get five to five and a half. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to target six plus. So I, I'm trying to make some some really sound changes at the moment. It's a very obvious thing to get to bed earlier. But, but you know, with a young family and a busy job, sometimes that, that's a little bit hard to achieve as you try to cram in all the other stuff in a sort of two hours once the kids are in bed and, and time ebbs away. But again, it's about discipline, really. Uh, don't hang about, get it done, you know, watch the news, get into bed. I'm trying to get that routine in place. So here's it's my different. challenge to you. Don't watch the news. <laughs> don't don't watch the news before you go to bed. You want to end on a on a, a high. Mm. The news is a depressant. It's never yes. good. It's always disastrous. So I tend to just go for the week. It's, it's a newsletter, uh, a newspaper, just a small magazine, comes out on a Friday, gives me what's going on in the world. I can keep in touch with that. But I know as soon as I start getting addicted to watching the news or looking at it on my phone, it's all stuff that's going to affect your performance. And also it will mm-hmm. affect your sleep. So if you could go from five hours to six hours, you're going to improve your performance the next day by 30%. Wow. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I don't know what you can do elsewhere that gives you an improvement in your performance, your thinking, your interaction with people, your mood by 30%. But sleep wow. is the foundation to it all. And Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker is a, a mainstay book. If you haven't read it, Justin, definitely listen to it read it he's actually very good on the audio oh yeah thank you yeah yeah why we sleep matthew uh, prof, uh i think he's a professor matthew walker um did all this study into it but but i now have a power nap so knowing that i'm going to have my sleep disturbed and we've also a bit like you got young children we've got a one and a half year old and a two and a half year old which they've been living with us for the last year or so right. um with our our son and his his wife um but they're moving out next month. So we're not <laughs> going to have screaming babies at three in the morning or little little two and a half year olds crawling into bed with Nana and Papa too, because <laughs> she's been screaming and can't get to sleep. And her daughter-in-law can't control the two of them at the same time because it's a, <laughs> quite a handful, poor thing, with the husband being away with the police. But um, sleep is a big thing for all of us, everybody listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can nail your sleep. I, I know, for example, when we went on holiday, Lee and I, to Greece, I got my quality of sleep improved so much. And I just was buzzing, working yeah, out in yeah. the gym and just feeling so good about it. And then yet yeah, I know as time has gone on with the grandchildren and uh, with the waking up in the night, the, the, the sleep depth, it wants me to have going, you've got to have nine hours now. And I'm going, <laughs> nine hours, I'm only getting six, what's going on? But, but I always aim six to seven. And then I add a power nap of 30 minutes around about one o'clock right it gives me two days in one day it is amazing wow. yeah, yeah. no more than 30 minutes if you go for more than 30 minutes you, you really start getting to your breaking into your, your night's sleep but the power nap i am raring to go and even if i'm uh, as i will be away in the states next week uh, running an off-site for a ceo and his board and then in germany uh running an off-site for a ceo and a board there the week after i'll probably try and find somewhere during the lunch break where i just lie under a table or something for half an hour and have a power nap <laughs> they think i'm nuts i don't care it just it just gives me that extra bit so let's uh, make sure that we all get as much sleep as we can emotional intelligence how do you listen well to others justin what's your skill I, I've, I've heard some of the other uh guests talk about this and it's really interesting i i think for me i know that um i'm predominantly left-brained um, we'll maybe come to have it later so a bit like you know, data and numbers don't jump to a conclusion. Listen to people. Let them, even if you think you know what they're going to conclude, hear them out and, and don't just hear it. Actually process it and think about it before you respond. Mm. I, I love that. And, and one of my great wind ups is when someone says to me, Yes, Jonathan, I hear what you say. No, that, that's such an <laughs> insult. That means like, I disagree with you entirely. You've just been waffling on. You haven't actually heard what I said. Can you summarize and play back to me what I've said? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I can't. Okay, so you really haven't heard what I've said at all. Because 
I'm going to listen to you and then I'll summarize what you said. So seek first to understand and then be understood. Mm. And, and then if I've shown that respect for you, would you listen to me and then summarize what I've said? And then let's have a, a further dialogue after that. So time and again, listening is a superpower for a leader like you, particularly many of the, the, the C-suite execs are quite left-brained, data, rational, logical. Mm -hmm. That's fine. You can win all your arguments with your data. However, people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. so to really listen to them and then ask them how they're feeling or whether they feel heard and seen, because it's a great skill of yours. If you can really get your employees to feel you've heard them and they feel seen by you, because often in their lives, they've rarely had that. It's mm -hmm. a great superpower. So, so... It's one thing I'm always working on, and I, I would recommend it to anybody listening. Um, the next thing is what I call CQ, cultural intelligence, cognitive uh, team sort of work. How do you get on with people who are very different to you? Really, really interesting. I talked earlier about having the uh, fortune to work in lots of different organisations earlier in my career and, and, and understand people make it happen. But one of the things I learned later through working with the coach it's something which is very obvious when you when you really think about it. But actually, people just view things differently. And we come back to uh, a model I use quite a lot now, the, the Herman brain model, so mm -hmm. left brain, right brain. Uh, and uh, it's only when I really understood how I think and how my brain works that you, um, well, I got the ability to begin to think, what, why is someone saying something which I really don't perhaps understand or agree with? They're not trying to be difficult. They just view the world in a different way uh, and they think about it in a different way. Uh, that does not mean they're wrong. So, so I think for me, the ability to stand back and really consider how someone else views the world and contextualise their opinion in that is really, really important because that, that gives you emotional intelligence and a good blend of people with varying emotional intelligence is a really powerful combination. Yeah, so, so spot on. This, this idea of diversity of um, background, culture, mm. race, sex, orientation, whatever it might be, to, to have differences and get on the healthiest people in the world, this is from mental health studies, are those who can get on with the widest variety of people who are different, see their perspectives, not have to agree with them, just understand. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to The Rest is Politics, where Rory Stewart, whose book, um, Politics on the Edge, I must read, I must listen. He, he speaks it, it's a very good one. And then you've got Alistair Campbell. Yeah. And the, the two together. But they had they had the the leader of the PLO in the West Bank explaining his point of view. They'd had an Israeli explain his point of view. And I think Nora Harari it was. Um, and, and, but they listened to them. And they listened and they listened. They may not have agreed, but they just heard their point of view. And... You talked about the Herman uh, whole brain model. It, mm. it's, it's a useful imagery. Neurobiologically, it's not true. Mm. So it, it's not as simple. Life is never quite that simple. Absolutely. Everything Absolutely. should be as simple as possible, but yeah. no simpler. But it, it is this idea that when you're thinking of something, there are bits on certain side, but there's bits on the other side as well that light up when you look at the, yeah, yeah. the what, what bits of the brain. But, but there is a, a preference for some people to want to have more logic and more reasoning, just as you've got introverts and extroverts, but it's not just as simple exactly. as that. You, you now have ambiverts, which are sort of partly a bit of each, or you could be an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert. It, it, we, we shouldn't box people mm, because, yeah. because just saying women are like this, men are like that, it, it's just so grossly wrong. Treat everybody as an individual and what works for them, just like that, that Christian ethic, treat your neighbor as yourself. No, treat yeah, your neighbor absolutely. as your neighbor yeah. wants to be treated, not as you want to be treated because yeah. it, you might have a different value set, different upbringing. But I think you're onto something very important about how you perceive people. Now, with all those problems you had with your eyes and some of the challenges you had as you were starting out in uh, as an environmental scientist and how you got yourself going and, time running a big business like yours like the Norse group you know you're going to have problems so my question is how have you picked yourself up in times of adversity and what would be a tip you'd give to others that's it's worked for you but it may not work for them 
I think we um, we come back to the point you and I both touched on, really, which is about perspective. When you're in the moment dealing with an issue, it can feel all-consuming and you might be able to see a way out of it. But you have to keep everything in perspective. Uh, and when you have perspective of whether it's the wider business or, you know, the wider world, all of a sudden it allows you to put things in a bit of a box at the end of the night and go home and pick it up next day. Uh, and touching on your point, then you sleep better because it's not on your mind. And then actually next day you come and look at it with a fresh pair of eyes uh, and you get some different different ideas or, or solutions. So allied to that, as people will probably sense from, from listening to me, I am quite a positive person. I think staying positive is really important. It's very easy to talk about all the problems that you might have, but you've also got to balance against all the good stuff that's happening because that's life. You get good and bad together. I, I love that. And you've triggered in me um, some, some tips I've picked up over the years, which others have found helpful. The first one is that we often have a brain that's full. It's got lots of stuff churning around. But actually, a, a RAM can get a bit crammed. And, and so while the brain is an incredible capacity it has, the, the, the random access memory rather than the main memory, they can be yeah. quite full. So I'm looking down here on my phone, as uh, not my phone, on my um, laptop as we're recording. I've got a thing called Todoist. Now, it's it's a, an app. There's a, I'm not saying it's the best app. It works for me. In the, when I've got something in my brain, I go, I'll just put it in Todoist. So it, it's in there with a smart objective and when I'm going to deliver it by and it'll pop up when that time comes to remind me. But it's now out of my head. So I can now be more present with you and be on the podcast. Clearly, I wouldn't do it in the middle of the podcast, but that even if I, an idea comes up, I just write on a piece of paper just very yeah. quickly so that I'm then present with you again. Because there is this great danger that someone's talking at us, but we're not really listening. We're there, yeah. but we're yeah. not, no one's home. And you can see this. I, I know uh, it's uh, sadly, it's often with Sarah, your wife, or with your child, your daughters, <laughs> you come back and you're still tired and your brain's thinking of something and they're talking yeah, to yeah, you. Yeah. And nobody's home. You know, Justin's not quite there. Yeah, yeah, so we yeah. owe it to our family more than anybody to be really present with them. And it's this thing of putting it on a piece of paper or in your phone, or whatever, and then it will be there in the morning. And this idea of if you wake up in the night and you've got an idea that's buzzing around, churning around, I need to talk to the plant manager, I need to talk to the plant manager, I mustn't forget to talk to the plant manager. Mm-hmm. And of course, you don't sleep. So just having a, a little red torch and a piece of paper beside the bed and just write it down in the morning pick it up it's there and it's not going to go anywhere you won't solve it in the night but i find those little tips and techniques so that you can be more present you can have perspective and you can be the resilient to focus on the few things that matter brand yeah absolutely brand next you've done you've had your own coach justin um and one of the great skills that my wife and i when we coach people whether it be groups or individual, particularly before an offsite, is to interview everybody and um, get um, perspective on the leadership team and get a perspective on the CEO. And then we write a report up and we give it to the CEO. And they find that outstanding, just an insight they've not had from anywhere else because you can fill in a form. But when you really start pulling the nuances out of people and it's not you, it's somebody else independently, it's gold dust. And um, I, I have particularly spent a bit of time before I'm going to go and be with this team in America and before with the team in Germany of interviewing all 14 members of one team and all 12 members of another team. I get some really good insights and it's just yeah, from them. It's not yeah, me making yeah. it up. So, yeah. so have you had really good 360 and what have you done with it? And what do you advise other people about? Do you find 360 useful? I mean, maybe you don't agree with me. Maybe you have a different view. What's your thoughts? I think um, I've, I've certainly had 360 in the past. So as you point out, I mean, I use a coach and I, and I use them in a very inclusive way. So I'm very open about where things are, what's gone wrong. And, and they talk to other members of the team as well to support them. But they also, of course, then help feed some of that back. So, so I think 360 is useful. But when you talk about what you do with it, one of the skills that you have to develop to really use it well is um, you know, reflective practice. Uh, and, and reflective practice is not panning yourself into the ground about everything you've done wrong. It's the ability to say, look, let's be open about it. What did I do well? What did I do badly? What would I change? Put it in a box and move forward. And, you know, basically don't make the same mistake twice. But um, I have found with people that's that can be very hard for people. People can lament on things they've done wrong. 
which actually might be quite minor in the grand scheme of things, but of course we feel things very personally. So developing that reflective practice is really, really important. Yeah, and that is another interesting conversation I had with this CTO of this big uh, fintech company. Uh, he has this ability to learn and pick up feedback. He's really hungry for feedback. He loved the feedback that I gave him. And what he's done, and not many senior leaders do this, he shared it with his other C-suite execs. It's feedback on him. Some of it very good. Some of it quite tough. Feedback on his team, of the, the, the 15 of them, what I call their first team. His first team is the team he reports into that works with the CEO. Mm. But this is the individuals who are working together, create a first team under him where they're all collaborating with each other. And he shared it with them. And now he's going to share it with his top 550 engineers. Uh, <laughs> that is balls. That takes courage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a really healthy attitude to learning. And he has a really positive attitude to what have we learned after action review? What are we going to do differently? That, that there isn't such a thing as failure. It's just it hasn't worked out. What have we learned and how are we going to act on it? And, and that's a, a really telling sign of a good, healthy, highly engaged organization that they are prepared for failure and they're going to learn from it. What's your attitude to people failing and how do you how do you deal with it? How do you handle it? Well, I think you just say, really, you have to be quite sanguine about things. Um, things don't always go to plan. That's the nature of business and it's the nature of operations. It, yes, it's useful to look back and say, why not? but let's not make the same mistake twice. So you have to look for the learning and the benefit out of the failure to then improve on. And we've certainly had times in the past where as a business, you know, I don't think we've got things quite right, but the ability to analyze it with the team, be clear about what's gone wrong and then present a new solution to the customer and get it, get it right is really quite powerful. Yeah, really good, really good. Love that. And then the, the last of the eight is uh, legacy. Um, I'm going to hear in a minute your legacy, but how would you suggest to people listening as they're thinking about their own legacy, making a difference in their lifetime as well as after they've died, but certainly in their lifetime, what do you want to be your kind of stewardship, your leaving things better than you found them? What what is what is yours and what tip would you give to others? For me, you know, I think uh, what my legacy be, I'd like when I'm gone, I'd like people to say that overall is a good person. Uh, and that I made a difference in the roles uh, that I had and the things that I did. And in particular, of course, you know, I want my children to feel like I've been a good dad to them. Yeah, no, I, I think that is really important. You need to be as simple as possible without it being motherhood and apple pie and, you know, you know, want to make a difference in the world. Yes, but but can you be more specific? For me, my legacy is to inspire leadership in those I have who inspire leadership in yeah. others who they lead inspiring leadership in my own family and my two daughters my stepdaughter my stepson my wife grandchildren two so far um and and that yeah um i leave things better than i found them um the final couple of questions executive teams or just teams um but particularly your own teams that you've had and now you're leading a team um in the group what do you do, what's your tip and what do you do when you've got a bit of toxicity in the team? How do you deal with it? How long do you put off handling it? Be honest with me. You might wait longer than you probably should have done because you don't want to be unpopular or whatever it might be. But what's your practical experience and what's your, your best advice? I've certainly learned along the way that um, you cannot, when, when there's an issue, you can't let it fester because all that happens is it gets bigger and it gets harder to deal with. So whilst, of course, you've got to be sure it is a genuine issue you need to deal with, once you've made that decision, you need to get on with it. I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I, I put in my notes when we were conversing was it's really important that you deal with difficult situations in the best way possible. So it may not be particularly pleasant, particularly if you feel you've got to let somebody go, but you can still do that with a good degree of humanity. And of course, just because somebody's not right in your organisation, they're not a bad person. It's just not a fit. So I think having those honest conversations and treating people with the best level of dignity you can is the only way to bring things to a head quickly and, and allow a team to move forward. Yeah, very wise, very wise. Um, before we do your top tip, favourite book and why should people why should people listen to it or read it? 
I picked a book called Strategy Safari, and it's actually a book which I read when I did my MBA some years ago now. It's by, by Henry Mintzberg. Mm-hmm. What I really liked about it was so many people, I still find, get caught up in the apparent mystique of strategy. What is a strategy? How do you develop it? How do you implement it? This book is, is really good because it goes right back to basics. It talks about 10 different types of strategy, and I still use it now to help frame my thinking and, and deliver either macro strategies or or smaller strategies. So I'd encourage anybody that's on a strategy challenge to have a look at it and just get some ideas and ground things back into into perspective. Very good. Thank you. Um, I will will make a point of looking that one up myself. Um, And uh, those who listen, often books that are recommended by guests uh, like Justin, I then listen to them and write reviews. So there's about 50 reviews of some of the best books that I've listened to, uh, the ones that I find absolutely crummy, I don't bother to write the review <laughs> up because um, they're just, I just don't want to waste people's time. Um, so help yourself. It's on the website, jonathanperks.com. Um, let's go for your introduction. Um, Justin, if you just explain who you are, what you do, and what your two minute top leadership tip is. I'm Justin Galliford, I'm the CEO of the North Group. Uh, my career started as environmental scientist, and at the age of 22, I set up my own consultancy business, helping organisations improve their environmental performance uh, and ensure regulatory compliance. I was lucky enough to join the Norse Group back in 2006, at that point, helping them manage landfill sites and waste operations. Following a bit of a period working on a, a large waste PFI project, um, by the age of 30, I'd moved through into other management positions. Uh, with some opportunity to diversify across the group. At that point, I was also lucky enough to undertake a, an MBA whilst I was also working for the group. And shortly after that, I began to move into sort of senior management roles and really begin to cut my teeth on managing people and, and managing teams. And then uh, back in uh, May 22, I was lucky enough to take the position as North Group CEO. And one of the things that I touched on earlier, I'm really, really pleased about is I kind of feel I've gone full circle. I started with those environmental credentials and now I get to bring those back to help drive and shape our corporate ESG strategy as we make our commitment heading towards net zero and of course help our customers as, as we touched on earlier. Good, and and if you were to give a top tip, what, what is your top tip? So my, my tip would be comprised of a few points really. Uh, the first thing I think is you've got to be really clear on what your stakeholders want from you. And that's your shareholders, your customers and your staff. And once you know that, you need to create a nice, simple strategy to deliver those outcomes for the organisation. And of course, to do that, you need to be able to paint a really clear vision. Again, keep it simple, but make sure everybody knows where you're going and how you're going to get there. And and to me, that means there's always going to be a few things within that you're going to champion relentlessly to make happen and drive forward. That's good, visible leadership and also get some momentum on things. Mm-hmm. you also have to it's really important you trust in your staff and your team empower them to go out and deliver things and own elements of a strategy get them to help co-design it without that you're not going to bed in real development and then i think it's really important to treat people as decently as you can uh, I, I mean i've i've put in my head I, I treat people as i'd expect to be treated but i certainly take your point earlier you know treat your neighbor as they want to be treated so that, that element of humanity and above all, keep it, keep it in perspective. One day it'll all be over. And when you see somebody walking down the street that used to work for you, what are they going to say to you? I hope mm-hmm. they'll say hello. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure they will with you, Justin. And um, there's always lots of learning for you and I and everybody else listening. But thank you very much for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I wish you every success with the Norse Group. And um, I look forward to finding out how it develops. So thank you, Justin. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks. 
and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.